Hi, writers. Welcome to our new episode on the craft of writing fiction. I'm happy we're together for it. This is Jim Thayer. I'd like to talk in this episode about how to enhance our setting descriptions. You've heard me say that the details we add to a scene should be specific, definite, and concrete. Those words, specific, definite, and concrete, are from Strunk and White's famous The Elements of Style. A detail is specific, definite, and concrete when it appeals to the senses. It should be heard, seen, smelled, tasted, or touched. John Gardner in The Art of Fiction speaks of details as, quote, proofs, rather like those in a geometry theorem. The novelist, John Gardner says, should, quote, give us such details about the streets, stores, weather, and details about the looks, gestures, and experiences of his characters so that we cannot help believing that the story is true. That's John Gardner. Scents, fragrances, or, or smells, is a concrete detail that make a setting vivid for readers. So let's talk about smells. How do smells work for the reader? Mentioning a scent can take a reader back in time in her own life. There's a theory uh, that the sense of smell, sometimes fragrant, sometimes foul, is more closely linked to memory than the other senses. And mentioning a smell in our scenes can also bring forth an emotion in a reader. Uh, Maybe a boyfriend years ago always smelled like Irish spring soap. And, and smell is even connected to our species' well-being, as it can warn us of rotten food or smoke. So when we add a scent to our scene, it can make an immediate and deep connection to the reader. And it's, it's easy for us writers to forget to add fragrances to our senses because as we are thinking about our scene, we typically do so visually. We, we play the, the scene out in a movie, uh, as in a movie in our minds. Movies don't have smells. As we plot, we build visual images and sometimes forget that the world is filled with smells. I was reminded of this as I read Sue Monk Kidd's novel, The Secret Life of Bees. She's a wonderful writer, and what a pleasure it is to follow her protagonist, 14-year-old Lily, on Lily's journey. The setting is South Carolina in 1964, and it struck me, wow, the rural South back then sure was filled with smells. Sue Monk Kidd's use of scents planted me right in her scenes time and time again. It was terrific. A scent can draw a reader right into the scene, making the setting complete. What a good lesson her novel is for us writers. Let me read a few examples from The Secret Life of Bees. Lily's father is called T. Ray, T. Period Ray. He's a peach orchardist. He grows peach trees. Quote, 
I followed her into the closet and scooted beneath dress hems and pant legs into darkness and wisps of dust and little dead moths back where orchard mud and the moldy smell of peaches clung to T-Ray's boots. Isn't that terrific, the moldy smell of peaches? Here's another example. When she stepped in the room, her scent floated out to me, dark and spicy, like the snuff she packed inside her cheek. When I read this, my memory lurched. Back when I was a kid, I knew an older fellow who always had chewing tobacco in his mouth. Uh, The outline of the round Copenhagen tin was visible in his shirt pocket. It always was there. And he had a smell to him, not entirely unpleasant, but distinctive. This memory flared up in my head when I read Sue Monk Kidd's sentence. I knew exactly what she was writing about because I'd been there with that smell. Here she is again, Sue Monk Kidd. Haze hung under the trees, and every inch of air smelled overripe with peaches. And here she is. And then the cry of birds overhead, sharp as needles, sweeping from low-bough trees, stirring up the scent of pine, and even then I knew I would recoil all my life from the smell of it. And here's more from Sumunk Kid. The jail smells with the breath of drunk people. Here she is. I stepped into a deserted corridor, clogged with too many smells. Carnations, old people, rubbing alcohol, bathroom deodorizer, red jello. The the reader here, me, thinks, yes, this is exactly what this hospital corridor would smell like. The author's taken me there. Here she is again, quote, The smell of fresh manure floated out from the fields. I grinned when I read this. I worked in the farm country in the summers in college, and this hit me. Yes, I remember this smell. It took me right there to that road with Sue Monk Kidd's protagonist, Lily. Here's the author. The smell of pork lathered in vinegar and pepper. And here she is. Mingled smells of pickled eggs and sawdust. And again, the picket fence was about to topple over from the weight of Carolina jasmine. Add that to all the chive, dillweed, and lemon balm growing around the porch, and the smell could knock you over. And this is the author. Again, I smelled furniture wax everywhere. And... The faint scent of honey coming from the wood. And one last one. This is Sue Monk Kid. May walked over and stood beside me, and I could smell nothing then but the pomade on her hair, onions on her hands, vanilla on her breath. These examples are from only the, the first quarter of the novel. Again and again, Sue Monk Kid's mention of the smell draws the reader right into the story. So here's the technique, and it's a good one. We writers should remember aromas in our scenes. They'll make a direct connection, maybe even a a powerful atavistic link to our reader. They'll bring the reader right into our scene. Let me return to 
technology for us writers for a minute. Two items. Timelines were mentioned in an earlier episode. And while and a way to keep events and dates straight when plotting and writing our stories, that's a timeline, a way to see with our eyes the times passing in our novel with events marked on the timeline. I use a paper timeline using the same technology that Charles Dickens likely used. A nice listener, Doug, sent me a link to a computer timeline. It's called Aeon Timeline. A-E-O-N, new word, timeline. You can find it by going to Google and entering Aeon Timeline. I haven't used it in my writing, but it looks promising. A new high-tech way Keep story events straight in our minds. And I want to mention a Wall Street Journal article recently that also discussed technology for writers. It was titled, Do You Hate to Write? These Tech Tools May Help. And its subheading is, Stop Relying Just on Microsoft Word and Google Docs. Other tools can make your writing easier and better. The article was uh, by Alexandra Samuel. Let me read a few lines from the article, which really opens up ideas about technologies for us, technology for us writers. This is Alexandra Samuel in the Wall Street Journal. Whether you write a newsletter, post a lot or a little on social media, or just need occasional ideas for reports, finding something to write about is often the hardest part of the job. All too often, I think of something to write that I'm sure I won't forget, only to forget it. That's why it's essential to set up a system for capturing all the different ideas you have, or even to capture little phrases or comments you might want to use in a future report, article, or presentation. I continue with the article. I used to keep all these random ideas in a, pa- in a tiny paper notebook, but flipping through page after page of scrawled writing made it hard for me to find the right idea when I needed it. So about 15 years ago, I committed to putting all my random ideas into a digital notebook instead. That's a program like Evernote or Coda that lets me quickly add a note on my phone or computer and provides a way to search through past notes without having to open a separate file to see each one. I have found that the more religiously you capture your ideas, the more ideas will come. This uh, is Alexander Samuel in the article. Uh, Again, Once you know what you want to say, it can still be a big challenge to get to a first draft because often our ideas are a bit jumbled before we get them on virtual paper. Some people organize their ideas in the writing itself, but for many of us, it helps to start with an outline. I know people who still swear by index cards, sticky notes, or whiteboards but I prefer to make my index cards and sticky notes digital by using something like a virtual whiteboard. There are all kinds of applications that can serve this purpose. Some are marketed as outlining tools such as Workflowy, some as digital whiteboards like Miro, and some as mind mapping applications such as Coggle and MindMeister. 
What's essential is to find a tool that works, like that collection of sticky notes. You want something that recognizes each idea or fact as a separate piece of information you can quickly rearrange on your screen, rather than treating all your separate thoughts as one big blob of text, the way a word processor does. You might find it especially helpful to work with something like MindMeister that lets you color code your thoughts, drag ideas into different areas of your screen, or draw lines and arrows to connect related concepts. By making it easier to rearrange your notes, these virtual outlining tools make it faster to go from a grab bag of ideas to a coherent outline. And unlike a physical whiteboard, it's a lot less likely to be erased. Uh, That's the end of the article in the Wall Street Journal by Alexander Samuel. I find it really interesting, these tools for remembering plot points and organizing the plot. They sound high-tech and useful, and uh, they may be worth us writers looking into. Let's take a quick break. You love listening to podcasts, but have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? Maybe you want to build a brand, grow your business, or are looking for an excuse to talk about your favorite hobby. Whatever your reason for making a podcast, Buzzsprout is the place to start. Since 2009, Buzzsprout has helped over 300,000 people launch their own podcasts. Buzzsprout walks you step-by-step through the whole process and will give you powerful tools to start, grow, and monetize your podcast. Ready to get started? Click the link in the show notes to get our free step-by-step guide to starting your podcast today. Here is a a new topic, and I hope a fun one, writing the romantic scene. As I was thinking uh, about this topic, I made a list, and lists help me keep things straight. So here's a list. Number one, novels in the romance genre are about romance, of course, and wonderful writers work in that genre. If you are writing in a genre other than romance, consider adding a romance to your story. The reason is, readers like romances, even in a thriller, even in horror, or a western, or a detective story, uh, a historical, or sci-fi, or fantasy, any genre. Two people meeting, uh, falling in love, overcoming obstacles to their love, it's a strong and attractive element to a story in any genre. Two, the romance shouldn't be easy. In fact, perhaps the two people destined for each other initially don't like each other much. And this adds an element of conflict to the story. Quote, the conflict, said Sharice Calhoun of the Romance Writers, is the struggle to make your love work. Three, romance, uh, readers mostly want romance, not sex. Uh, Adult readers know about sex, they don't need a manual, and, and readers usually want the romance. Novelist and poet David Groff says, quote, but for all novels, the rule is the same. Don't ever write a love scene just for the sake of sex. Don't do it to thrill the reader or for a break in the action. A good romantic scene 
and uh, or a physical encounter should propel the story forward and reveal the characters. Your job is to enlighten your readers about the plot, not about sex or romance. End quote. That's David Groff. And in any event, sex scenes are hard to write because it's easy to slip into porn or unintentional comedy. Number four, as with all scenes, avoid too much interior monologue, also known as a character thinking. Whatever the character heading for romance is thinking should almost always be acted out or expressed in dialogue. Scenes in a novel are external. They could be put on a stage and acted out, and this includes romance. Uh, Here's an example. Here is interior monologue, the, the character thinking about romance. Here's the thoughts. I'm beginning to think she likes me. That's interior monologue, and such a sentence of thinking is hard to make interesting, but try this instead. She stared at me. Well, that's action. We see something. We have something to look at. Staring at someone in the context of our scene between these two people, means she's attracted to him. That's a classic signal of attraction, looking at someone a little longer than necessary. Or try this, she smiled at me. Or, as she walked by, she brushed my shoulder. All of these things are visual and could could be acted out on a stage and are much more effective than she might have been attracted to me. In his wonderful novel, Sag Harbor, the author Colson Whitehead does this, acting out an attraction externally so the reader can watch rather than hear interior monologue. The protagonist is 15-year-old Benji, who finds a summer job at an ice cream shop. Uh, The working space behind the ice cream counter is a tight squeeze, and a young lady who works there, she starts accidentally on purpose, brushing her breasts against his arm a couple times a day. It's funny, but it's also Colson Whitehead knowing that physical attraction can be written so that it is external. The reader watches the young lady brush by Benji too closely, not just listening to interior monologue. Number five, one of the ways to show, rather than to tell, about a developing romance is with dialogue, of course. And early in the romance, it shouldn't be lovey-dovey stuff. That's not how real life works, and the reader will notice the artificiality of it. But in real life, people attracted to each other often reveal things when talking to each other that they don't tell other people. It's a wonderfully intimate moment in fiction, when a character opens up to the other person. Not a lot, not a word salad outpouring of candor, but something small but significant, something she wouldn't say to other people. That's showing her attraction. Number six, we may be focused on dialogue between our characters, but we shouldn't forget body language. Ever notice that when friends or strangers talk with each other, they stand at a seemingly predetermined distance from each other? Isn't it odd? There's some sort of widely understood convention among people that there's a proper distance. 
people falling in love stand a little closer to each other. That's body language. They might not notice it, but it happens. Same with uh, touching each other. At first, rarely and innocently, but then the, the happenstance touch lasts a bit longer. She reaches down to help him up a steep path, and he holds her hand two seconds longer than normal. We know what a normal grip is in those relations, lending a hand. Two seconds too long is a signal, maybe not one understand, uh, understood by either of them. Uh, another body language item of someone falling in love is that he looks longer than normal at the other person. Here too, maybe the soon-to-be-a-couple don't realize what's happening, that this signal, looking too long, is involuntary, but it builds towards the realization of love for both the characters and the reader. Number seven, have the character who may be falling in love act in character. If our hero is an awkward 16-year-old guy, he usually shouldn't be sophisticated when falling in love. He's awkward. His falling in love should be awkward. If our character is shy, then shyness should be part of the budding romance. Uh, a character likely shouldn't have a different personality when falling in love than she has for other events in the story. Number eight, give some thought to the setting where the characters are finding out things about each other and edging toward romance. But it doesn't have to be a nice restaurant or a walk in the park or other place, other places we associate with romance. It can be an odd place for romance to develop, which will add contrast to the scene. You know about contrast. When we compare two things that are dissimilar, each is made to stand out. Red is more red when placed next to green. Well, that's the same with romance. Romantic dialogue is more romantic when in an unusual when it takes place in an unusual and non-romantic place remember the hit song palisades park sung by freddie cannon it's a terrific early rock and roll song last night i took a walk after dark a swinging place called palisades park to have some fun and see what i could see that's where the girls are i took a ride on a shoot the shoot that girl I sat beside was awful cute. After we stopped, she was holding hands with me. My heart was flying. Part of the charm of the song is that love blooms on a shoot-the-shoot, and they kiss at the top of a carnival ride. You'll never know how great a kiss can feel when you stop at the top of a Ferris wheel. The kiss and the Ferris wheel are, are, are out of context. They contrast with each other. Who hasn't daydreamed about a kiss at the top of a Ferris wheel? I have, and you have too. The contrast of the setting with the romance works in the song, and it'll work in our novel. Have the dialogue and the gestures of your couple who are falling, who are falling in love on a factory floor with all the robotic arms welding auto bodies together, or have it on the deck of a of a commercial halibut fishing boat. The contrast will add spark to the scene. Number five, don't forget the five senses. Sh sure, readers will get to see and hear the characters bound for romance, see and hear them, but they should also smell them. Few things are 
as romantic in real life and in fiction as a person's lovely scent. Uh, let me mention something, a small incident in my life regarding scent. In college, in a political science class, I happened to sit every day next to a, a beautiful young lady who was a year ahead of me in school. This, this young lady was outrageously attractive, and she was entirely out of my league. She, she was a head-turner with a, an appealing personality, and I, at age what, 19, hadn't yet emerged from my chrysalis of dorkdom. She was dating some big football or basketball star, I can't remember. But she would smile at me once in a while, and her presence made listening to a lecture about Italy's parliamentary system bearable. One day I mentioned to her, and I can't remember how the subject came up, because it wasn't my normal 30-second chatter with her before class began. I mentioned that I liked her perfume. The next political science class, when we sat next to each other, I noticed she had ramped up that perfume, had used extra, just to be pleasing, just to have me not listen to all, at all to the lecture, I suppose. But to sit there in her cloud of scent and feel good about the world, I suppose a cynic would say she was exercising her control over me. Nah, she was having fun and giving me some fun. I didn't mention it, and I don't think she would have wanted me to, but it was a nice thing for her to do, a compliment to me. I still remember her scent, and were I to smell it again, even these decades later, it would yank my head around. Smell makes a direct connection, as we've just talked about earlier in this episode, so add it to a character headed for romance. And it doesn't need to be perfume. Maybe she's a farrier and always smells of horses. Maybe she owns a bloodhound and always smells like, like a pooch. Maybe she's a, a spice gardener and the smell of lavender always trails her. Maybe, maybe he eats General Mills Cinnamon Toast Crunch for breakfast every day and so smells like cinnamon. And sound. Give the character a foggy Lauren Bacall, Emma Stone voice so that the reader listens to her dialogue but is also aware that her voice is low and sinuous. And add the sense of touch. Maybe they brush up against each other once. Maybe not like Colson Whitehead's ice cream worker. But maybe they touch each other somehow casually. And the point of view character doesn't know if it's an accident or a signal. It, it could be really romantic. So the point is, remember the, all the senses here. Number 10. Build to the romance slowly. This is related to a comment earlier that the romance shouldn't be easy. The fun of it for the reader is to watch the two characters discover things about the other, each other and about themselves. One step at a time, one revelation at a time. Keep the reader in suspense. Are they going to fall in love? And the moment it dawns on a character that he is in love, that moment, that revelation is wonderful for the reader. And even more wonderful is the character learning that his love is returned. We can let the reader wait for it. Uh, number 11, and this is related to the last one, don't resolve the romance too early. Just like the answer to the novel's main story question, which 
resolution should be saved until the last pages. The romance resolution, the happy ever, uh, the happy ever after phase, should also be saved. The reason is that uh, the romance is going to be a big attraction for the reader, and resolving it too early, having the couple realize they love each other. Uh, will remove some of the reason for the reader to continue reading. Save the wonderful revelation of love for the ending pages. Number 12, don't forget cause and effect, particularly after the romance's climax. A a romance is, is powerful in real life, and it should be in fiction too. It likely will have changed your protagonist in some way. Mention how the romance affected the characters. This is likely after the novel's climax, so make it short. Remember our discussion about the walk-away? Everything we write after the climax where the main story question is answered near the end of the novel. That's called the walk-away. Keep the walk-away short, but do let the reader know how the romance changed the characters. Number 13. Shouldn't plot elements in our story be a surprise? If we have a man and a woman in the novel, won't their romance be predictable? Probably, but who cares? The reader may readily presume these two characters are headed for love, but the reader will be highly interested in how they find it. How does this romance happen? Uh, we writers may work hard to make the romance not so predictable, but still, the reader will likely guess what's going on between the two characters. The reader won't care. Romance novels, which are about a third of all novels sold, are almost unfailingly about successful romances. Romance readers don't care it's predictable, nor will readers in a novel we are writing. If that novel isn't a romance but is a thriller or or sci-fi or some other, the reader won't care that it might be predictable. Regarding romance, it's the path to love that the writer can make unpredictable, usually not the eventual outcome. Uh, Fourteen, I suggest, at least for me and maybe for your story too, that the romance should end happily. Uh, Walt Disney said, I'm a happy ending guy. So are most readers. They want something new and fresh in their lives offered by fiction, and reading about a successful romance is often just the thing. Most of the time, the romance should be resolved in a happy way in our stories. But that's not always the case in real life and in novels. There's room for a romance in, in some stories to not work, leaving the character, uh, melancholy, and maybe with regret. Or maybe near the very end, the main characters realize they are just too different for a romance to work. This melancholy and sadness aren't for me, because I'm a believer in Walt Disney's phrase. But you may be different, and sometimes in fiction, a romance won't work. Uh, Consider, though, that we writers want the reader to like our story, and a romance at work works is something big in a story. We have arrived at the end of this episode. Uh, if you'd like to send me a, an email, my email address is jimthayerseattle at gmail.com. I look forward to our next episode and I'll see you then. Until then, this is Jim Thayer. Please keep tapping those keys. <laughs>